Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode of Inside the Rope, we're speaking with Hamish Douglas. Hamish is the Chief Investment Officer and CEO of Magellan Financial Group, which is most well known for its international share fund, which has been in operation for over 10 years. During that period, it has accumulated more than $50 billion in assets and over the last five years has returned to investors more than 17%. One of the main reasons I was keen to speak with Hamish is his views on the companies of tomorrow that are going to survive and thrive. I hope you enjoy. Hi Hamish, thanks for joining us. Could you please start off by giving us a bit of a background of your investment background and some of your major influences? Well, really my investment background and the influence is when I first started working. Uh, I started working in 1990, straight out of university, and I joined a company, Schroders Australia. And on the day I joined, another person joined, a gentleman called Chris Mackay, who's actually my co-founder with me at Magellan. Uh, Chris is a number of years older than I am, and the day I joined, he put about 20 years of annual reports from Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, mm-hmm. onto my desk and said, if you, he said, if you want to be educated, I'd suggest you start reading these. And I sat down and I read all these annual reports, and this was before the days where you had collations and books and essays and things by, by, by Warren Buffett. So you went and read the original source documents, and I was absolutely fascinated by the way he, he talked and he spoke about uh, spoke about business. And I got so interested in business, and don't forget I was on the advisory side, I wasn't on the investment management side. I walked into our librarian at Schroeder's and I said, would you give me every copy of every broker report that comes into Schroeder's Australia every day. And so she would put probably four or five inches of documents every day into my in-tray and I'd take them home at night and I'd read all these broker's reports which would describe all these Australian listed uh, businesses to educate myself. And Chris and I had a joint investment company in those early days called Magellan Equities. Uh, uh, it was actually named after a, a fund called the Magellan Fund, a fund in the United States, and it was managed by Peter Lynch, a very famous investor in the United States. And then Chris and I went on an excursion for 15 years in investment banking. Uh, and really, in the beginning of 2006, Chris stepped down in 2005, um, we agreed to set up an asset management business, and that's when Magellan Financial Group was born. So a huge amount of the influencing in our thinking really came uh, via those early letters from Warren Buffett that Chris put on my desk. So you're talking about a deep value, uh, economic moat, back to basics, fundamental style of investment and thinking. Yeah, the only thing I'd challenge you, I think, would be the deep value side of uh, things. Deep value has a particular meaning to me, and I think mm-hmm. that's where Warren Buffett really started out. He started out with the Ben Graham education if you've read security analysis, very deep value investing, trying to buy businesses for less than their working capital mm-hmm. and seeing if you get one puff left out of the cigar. And really, in about 73 or 74, Warren and Charlie Munger changed their view from deep value into sort of pure economic mode and franchising investings and paying a fair price for a wonderful business rather than finding something really deep value and really cheap. And, and we've never bought things I would describe as really deep value. We, we, we try and buy outstanding businesses with great economics, with great long-term competitive advantages, what Warren Buffett would call an economic moat uh, uh, around the businesses. Hopefully we can buy them when they're cheap. 
Mm. Um, and, th- and that's what we're seeking. But I, I wouldn't put us in that deep value, crappy business territory, which I sort of ascribe with okay. deep de- value. If you, can buy, if you can buy a wonderful business that's going to compound with high returns on capital and you get it at an attractive valuation, um, you're going to do pretty well over time. And now, of course, fast forward 10 years and you're your organisation is managing something north of $50 billion, congratulations. But of course, that's also in the international space. For many of my clients, international is not always, and international as an asset class is not always in their experience or their vocabulary. Why should people be thinking about international investment? David, I think that that's a very, very important question. First of all, we have to understand that uh, the Australian stock market is approximately 2% of world markets as measured by the MSCI index. So we are a very, very small proportion. And if you look up the makeup of our market, our, our market is over half represented by mining companies and the big four domestic banks. So we're very exposed to what happens in the Australian domestic economy for the banks. And we're very exposed to the demand for commodities, particularly out of China. Sometimes they do wonderfully well, but we have very little diversification here in our market. Less than 2% of our market is in technology. The biggest now global sector in the world is now the technology sector. Seven of the top 10 largest companies in the world are technology companies yet they only represent 2% of our market, and our market only represents 2% of the world market. And I feel very, very strongly, unless you really believe that Chinese construction activity and the Australian banking system is going to outgrow everything else in the world, having your money in the Australian market that is over half represented by those two sectors, which have historically done well, I'm not sure looking forward into the future of being so up underrepresented in things like technology, and of course there's many other great companies around the world which we could talk about, I think looking forward the world is changing and changing dramatically and businesses are going to get disrupted. If you want to be on the right side of what's going to happen in the future, I do think you have to have a meaningful proportion of your equity investments exposed to some great global businesses. So Hamish, how do you think about and how do you identify what's going to be a great company in the future and what's going to be a great investment in the future? Again, I think you're, you're, you're asking a really important question. We, we, we start with a philosophy that we want to in invest in businesses that have economic moats. So we want businesses that have demonstrable, sustainable competitive advantages. So we really look at the structure of the industry. We look at what makes the business models work and we really try and think out into time, could there be things that threaten those advantages and could change over over time. And we want those businesses in the industry structures that can earn excess returns on capital, typically high return on equity um, businesses uh, over time. Historically, consumer staples have been a wonderful place to have been invested. They're the branded companies of the, of the world, the Procter & Gamble's, the Coca-Cola's, uh, the Nestle's of the world have had very, very high returns on on capital and because of their ownership of brands, you would say that they've had very good returns and they have been core investments we've held historically and Warren Buffett's held historically. We're asking ourselves a question, are they the right businesses for the future? History would tell you they are, but we're thinking about business models 
And why many of those branded consumer companies were such strong companies was because the business model was defended by two things. One was television advertising and the other was grocery distribution. You had very large grocers emerge in the world like Woolworths and Tesco and Walmarts of the world and you had dominant television advertising. And if you were a very large brand, you could afford to own the share of mine through television. And once you had that, you could own the shelf space within the core retailers. Both those business models are breaking down. Television advertising is going to absolutely change in the next 10 years, particularly by the advent of things like Google and Netflix, any of these over-the-top streaming services. Facebook wants to get into video and the economics of television are changing and the chances of advertisers and these brands being able to dominate television and that type of advertising is going to change. And then we have a company like Amazon. And is Amazon going to change the retailing model? And therefore, are the Walmarts of the world going to be dominant in the future? So we're even questioning something you would think is a fantastic business like Procter & Gamble. We're starting to question that today. So what makes a good business? It all comes down to the long-term economics and the competitive advantages and the business models they have and whether those business models can be attacked. And Buffett often describes he wants businesses in huge castles with big moats, with crocodiles filling up the moats. Some of the moats are starting to get drained and that's what's important to understand here. Capitalism can be brutal and can change over time and you really need to think ahead about what's going on and what can change in business models. So, Hamish, you're talking a lot here about change coming up, and um, you know one of the words I see in the media is disruption and digitisation. And for a lot of clients, that's that's kind of meaningless. What do you see as disruption and digitisation, and what do you see the effects of that? I think you've alluded to a couple of them there. Well, let, let me give you an example. So sometimes it's not that apparent till we hear a real-world example of what, what 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 disruption could be. In around 2010, 2011, um, automated checkouts in supermarkets started to get rolled out in the United States. Um, So was that disruptive? Wasn't it disruptive? It was a new technology that was being introduced into a supermarket to effectively take out checkout people out of checkouts and put in multiple more automated checkouts. And we're seeing them in Woolworths and everything else. Wrigley Chewing Gum has been one of the greatest businesses in the world and not that long ago Warren Buffett gave it the example of one of the businesses he could see into the future that was unlikely to be disrupted. But since 2011, chewing gum sales in the United States have dropped by 16%. What happened? These electronic checkouts stopped the impulse purchase of chewing gum. So their business model of impulse purchase started to get disrupted. So really understanding why a business is a good business and what its business model is really important. So that's a very simple technology change which is causing a business disruption in something that you would think is incredibly stable. There are really only two chewing gum producers. So it's one of the most concentrated high return on capital businesses but its business model started to change with a very, very simple technology. We're moving into technology areas. If you look what happened to newspapers with the advent of the internet, we're now going to see television get decimated with over-the-top streaming. Uh, If we get to driverless cars, and I think in the next 10 to 15 years we will, the whole automotive sector will get fundamentally disrupted. It's going to have some huge beneficial impacts on, 
on, on, on society in terms of urban parking and car parks and, uh, and the cost of transportation will come down dramatically. And if we could get into artificial intelligence and everything else, we're starting to see the advent of technologies coming in, but we're very interested in how those technologies could change historical business models. That's what we really mean by disruption, where it disrupts a business model. Hamish, you alluded to Amazon a little bit before, and from some of my readings, it seems that you're a bit of a fan of Amazon. Um, why aren't you invested in Amazon? It's a very good question. I, I think Amazon is an amazing business. I would put Jeff Bezos up with close to the best businessman in the last 30 years anywhere in the world. Uh, I think Amazon is going to become even more dominant in the in the future in what they what they're doing and their competitive advantages increase by by the day. The problem is it's a very very difficult business to value because of the transparency that that that, that you get. And unless we have a clear view of what we think the rate of return we can get out of an investment, we don't invest. We've got a we've got a pre-tax return after all our fees of nine percent per annum. Unless we have a clear view of how we're going to earn that rate of return uh, for our investors, um, we're not going to invest. And we have not, even though I understand what the business does and I understand its competitive advantages, we haven't been able to clearly see what the earnings will do over time. And we just don't invest because we think it's a good business. We invest because we think it's a good business and we have a good view on what we think we can earn out of it. We don't have a good view on what we could earn out of Amazon, so we don't invest. We don't speculate that we think its price is going to go up. We have to have a very good analytical basis for understanding why the value will go up over time. So would it be fair to say, you know, a lot of people will say to me, how is this time different? If you look at 99 and the dot-com dot dot bubble, um, a lot of companies, you could just put a dot-com at the end of your name and get a, an IPO and a listing, uh, etc. Um, and companies were trading on multiples of revenue, etc. How would you say this time around in technology and the exposure is different? Is it because of the demonstrable earnings uh, or, or is it something else? Well, I, I think it's fundamentally different. Before it was the advent of the internet and the internet was just going to lead to things. A lot of these companies had no business model. They had no earnings and no proven way that how they would have earnings. So it was just a land grab that was a... Uh, that, that was occurring. If we're talking the large technology companies today, if you talk about Google in Western Europe, they have over 90% market share in search. You have businesses earning very high returns on capital with very, very big competitive advantages, earning real earnings. And, and, and we're talking about you know Google's trading at maybe 24 times earnings, and that's after massive investments they're making in their business and after nearly $100 billion of cash sitting on their, on, on their balance sheets, if you adjust for a few of those things, Google's trading in line with the S&P 500, which is the US index at the moment, about 17 or 18 times earnings, and it's growing its earnings at, or its revenues around 23% at the, at the moment. So these businesses have real earnings and you can analyse them with respect to the multiple you're paying for those earnings. Before there were no earnings and no business models and it was just all hype. It is fundamentally different to what was occurring in 1999. Hamish, you touched on Google there and another company you've got an investment with, Apple, similar to Google, is a large technology company producing lots of returns. Um, 
what what is there to stop them becoming a Kodaker of the world? And what I mean by that is a large organisation with lots of employees, and, and they lose their ability to innovate, and they also get get concerned about cannibalising their existing product and and won't release the next big thing. How can they continue to grow? Are you nervous about companies in that space, like Apple, for instance, not being able to keep to innovate in the future? Well, I, I think Kodak's a really good example. Uh, Kodak was a business which 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 effectively owned the camera and the photographic film. It was a photographic film uh, model, and they actually invented the digital camera. And within a very short period of time, from their peak from their peak earnings, they went bankrupt in three years. And that was really through a business model change. It went from film to digital, and with digital there is no film. Yet they invented the camera, but they didn't want to fundamentally disrupt themselves. So I think you're asking a very good question here. What you have to understand from, from Apple is, and I wasn't a fan of Apple until a number of years ago, Apple is an operating system. And the iPhone is a, is a subscription payment to that operating system. The job's very famously fractionalised in a deal he did with AT&T. So people pay $50 a month for their iPhone. You don't go and pay $650 for the iPhone. So fractionalising it to turn it into a subscription service. And once you're inside that ecosystem, a huge amount of other things attach to that ecosystem, such as Apple Music and storage and iTunes and the App Store. This is massive services revenue that attaches. And Apple is very, very good at adding unique things around its ecosystem that makes a switching cost very high. We think about the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch isn't just a wearable watch device. It's actually increasing the switching cost from leaving the iPhone because only tethers to an iPhone. So if you have an uh, iWatch and their sales were up 50%, year on year in the last quarter, that is increasing the switching costs. If you have your photos in the on your iPhone and you want to move to an Android phone, you cannot take your photos easily from Apple anywhere else. So you'll lose all your family photo history unless you're very tech savvy if you want to move out of, uh, of, of, of Apple. So, and so it's another crocodile in the moat. I think there are lots of crocodiles that are starting to put in the mode. It's, people think it, it's not the hardware. It may well be that the hardware form factor will change uh, as we get more into augmented and virtual reality and voice. So we may find the, these phones aren't really phones anymore. They're not really used for making phone calls. They're effectively a, a computer device in your hand. Therefore, the computer device, but it's, it's going on an operating uh, system and because you have all these other attachments in your life, they don't have to be the first there. Apple's never been the first there on any of these things, and I think they've shown they're very adapt. That if the form factor changes, they will up and integrate their software, their iOS, into that form factor change. I'm not saying this is not without risk, but the chance of this turning from a photographic film into a digital thing and disappearing and going off the of the thing, I think those risks are fairly low with uh, with Apple for the very foreseeable sure. future. Even if the form factor from a phone turns into a different form of form factor. Hamish, how do we differentiate between the company of the future and something that you've been in the press as quoted uh, against Uber as being you know akin to a Ponzi scheme, where many people 
obviously those who have invested uh, at rounds rumoured to be north of 60 billion US in valuation think it's worth something and got a business model. How, how do people avoid investing in things that may not be worth anything in the future? Um, and, and how do they look through to see that something's actually going to have some a business model in the future? Well, I, I think I was trying to talk about this earlier. What do we look for? We, we, we really try and understand what a business model is. And then we try and think is what could be threats to the business model in the future. No, none of it has perfect vision in the future, but we think a lot about looking forward about the actual business model. A lot of people investing in Uber because they're using it in their personal lives and see it rapidly growing its revenue. And because it's a technology platform company, everyone goes, oh, this is just fantastic. Let's invest in it. We peel the onion and say, now let's think about the business model. Most of these technology businesses are fit a network effect businesses. You need effectively, if you're at Uber, you need two things working for you. You need lots of users using the app and you need lots of owner drivers driving the cars because if you only had a few drivers but lots of users, you'd never get an Uber when you wanted one. And if you had lots of drivers and no users, the drivers wouldn't make any money because there'd be no customers. So it's this classic thing once you get scale, it's a bit like Visa and MasterCard. You need lots of users having the card and you need everywhere you go being accepting them. So then we say we understand it's a network effect business, but the business model is having an owner operator owning their own cars. And we're saying, well, what could happen in the future? And we're thinking driverless cars. Driverless cars save about $300 a day from having a driver. A driver is a high cost solution. So having one side of your network with owner drivers will be the buggy whip model when cars came in. You do not want to have owner drivers in your system owning their own cars when you get to driverless cars. What do you need? You need access to the safest autonomous driving technology and you need massive amounts of capital to roll out a fleet of cars. Their model is to not put any capital into the fleet of cars, it's for someone else to pay for them, someone else to drive them. So if autonomous driving happens, one side of Uber's business model will collapse. Will they win the race of rolling out a driverless fleet? Or will Google or Apple or someone with unlimited amounts of capital and probably the companies who will own the autonomous driving technology Will they the ones who get that side of the network? And once you have the cars everywhere, is it that hard to get the users? I don't think the users are the incredibly valuable part of their network, given how quickly in the internet economy apps can spread. So I, I just say Uber at the moment is a bet that autonomous driving doesn't happen in the future. Talking about automotive, is there, as an example, an opportunity for incumbent large companies, international, multinational companies, to take advantage and apply this technology. So you take a, a Volkswagen group of the world, which I believe produces as many cars in two days as Tesla produced in the whole last of 12 months. Is there an opportunity for them to own the future or is it going to be lost to the upstart of a Tesla of the world, for instance, broadly speaking? I'm not, I'm not sure either of those companies will win in the future. I think the, the real value of, of autonomy in the future will accrue to the owners of the operating system. And I doubt we're going to have 15 different operating systems in the world because it's a safety issue. And I think it will end up like mobile phones. You end up with two of them. 
Uh, and we may well have one or two operating systems in the world that all the manufacturers use. The manufacturing of electric cars is actually far simpler than internal combustion engines. There's far fewer moving parts. I think there's around 20 moving parts in an electric autonomous vehicle. And I think electric vehicles is part of this future uh, compared to um, um, thousands of moving parts in an internal combustion engine vehicle. And if we get to autonomous driving, because utilisation of cars is very low at the moment, this whole economies of scale completely changes because we'll need far fewer cars in the future in, a, in an autonomous car sharing world. So the advantage that a Volkswagen has at the moment, more complex technology, I don't mean the software, I mean the making of the car, internal combustion engines are more complex than electric cars and you need real economies of scale to, to work out there. The technology they have today is internal combustion energy technology, which they are leaders of the world that technology is going to be like buggy whips. That, that won't exist anymore. And their other advantage is mass scale. You may not need the same mass scale. They probably will adapt. I think they're very good manufacturers, but they may well be on much smaller scale and where the real value is maybe in the software. And they don't appear to be leading in the software race at the moment, even though they have got some activities in the space. Sure. Hamish, what sort of companies do you see as surviving in the future, although they're old world, if you'd like. I think you might have spoken, I think you may even hold companies like McDonald's. Um, how do those sort of companies deal with this sort of change um, in the future? Well, David, I, we really split the world into, into two different areas at the moment. We're splitting it into the disruptors. Um, can we invest in a portfolio of businesses that are likely to win or are winning from disrupting through through technology, um, payments businesses, Visa and Mastercard, the Googles or Alphabet, as it's called, Facebook, and th those types of businesses. Then we're also thinking on the other equation of non-disruptors. Where are there businesses that really aren't that technology related, whose business models are very unlikely to get disrupted through some of these revolutions that that, that are occurring? We've sort of locked on in one area called biological goods. We don't think we're going to stop eating biological foods. Um, in the in the near future, we may ultimately get uploaded to machines, but it's not something I'm worrying about as an investor in the next 20 years. Uh, and I do think that people will still want occasions to have food like McDonald's, and 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 their business models are very very powerful. They may well have to get more technology related in their businesses as habits change, uh, mobile mobile operate order and pay systems. Uh, delivery, more digital involved, but they can integrate in that business. But the, the pure fact that somebody wants that brand and wants a McDonald's burger, even though it could change in its menu type over the time, I think they've got massive advantages in that, in that, in that scale. There could be health trends that chirp, but they can change their menu with those health trends. So if you look in our business, we, we have three of those sort of mass scale quick service restaurant concepts now in the portfolio. We have McDonald's, Yum Brands that owns uh, KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. And we've recently bought a position in Starbucks as its prices started to come, come off. And Starbucks is a very, very interesting uh, business. It's in the daily habits of consumers with an addictive product. Uh, with still massive opportunities to roll out stores and their digital engagement with their customers is off the, is off the chart. We're, we're making some other investments, maybe in some infrastructure and other areas. In business models, we think are very unlikely to be 
be disrupted. So there are businesses that are not going to be disrupted. There could be wonderful long-term investments with high returns on capital. There are the disruptors, but make sure you're in the right business models there. There are businesses, we talked about the auto companies. I think that is a very, very difficult space to look at 10 years and not see most of them bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, So there could be a winner there, but I think that's a really hard one, so we kind of avoid. And there are the other businesses where the business models are likely to get affected. And so we're very cautious on some of those types of businesses uh, at the the moment. But if you look at both ends of the spectrum, you ask this question about Australian investing, in terms of the business models that are disrupting, we've got a few little niches in Australia, maybe REA, Seek or something, but do we have global business models that are on the disruption side of the equation that are going to, they're winner-takes-all business models. They are changing the world in terms of what's driving economics. We don't have practically any of them in Australia. And do we have many of these deeply non-disruptors? Where is the McDonald's of Australia? Where, where, where is the Starbucks of, of, of Australia? We don't have many of those, uh, those, those, those businesses. And if we have them, um, some of their prices could be at almost no, nosebleed territories because there's so few of those businesses in Australia that most people have worked out you want to you want to own them. Hamish, just to round things out for our listeners, uh, you've spoken a lot and written about uh, investor behaviour a little bit. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an insight or some words of wisdom about investor behaviour and what makes good investor behaviour? Yeah, I I think it's it's important to understand that how, how biology has developed over or through evolution over hundreds of thousands of years, we've got shortcuts hardwired into our, into our brains, which can make us make incredibly poor decisions from, from, from time to time. So, so, so if you think about when, when you're in times of stress, um, you will have adrenaline released into your system. So when we were cavemen and you saw a line coming at you, and you were stressed, having adrenaline being released into your system was incredibly helpful. But when stock markets are plummeting and you get stressed and having adrenaline released into your system is not very helpful. It may cause you to have very strange reactions or typically you'll get it probably when the stock markets are going up, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get all this feeling of being good and you'll get comfortable and you'll keep, you'll keep investing. So, so I think we have to be careful that we're not naturally wired to make the right decisions at the right time. We tend to, we, we tend to sell at the bottom and buy at the top. And I think that is a hard wiring into our, fill, into our, into our human nature. There are other biases which, which studies of heuristics have, have identified uh, that, that tell you you can also make bad decisions. We have a, a natural loss aversion bias. It's been proven in tests after test after test. So if you've got an investment that you're losing money on, and it could be a terrible one, you don't sell it because you want to make your money back. But not selling a business that's going bad could be one of the fundamentally wrong decisions. You should not pay any attention to what you paid for it. You should think about what are the prospects for the business and at its current price, are you prepared to buy the stock? But we're wired in such a way, I just want to make my money back. So you can hold on to something that you shouldn't hold on to. We've got other biases uh, such as an anchoring bias. And the, the biggest anchoring bias is we're anchored to what the current share price is. 
So if the share price has gone up 30% in the last 12 months and we're looking at it daily on the, on the sheets, the anchoring bias tells us it's expensive because we've got a reference point. It doesn't matter what a share price has done over the last six or 12 months. The only matter is, is what is a stock worth and what is the share price in comparison to the stock? But because we look at stock prices every day and look on charts whether they're going up or down, this influences or anchors our views around whether it's a, a good buy or not a buy. And we've got a lot of this going on in the technology companies. We've, we've had a number of these technology stocks that may have gone up 30 or 40% in the last year. And everybody's ringing the alarm bells going, is these stock prices, it's a bubble. But they're not saying, but their earnings have gone up 30 or 40% in the last year, and on a multiple basis, they're about the same multiple as they were 12 months ago. You're not hearing that in the discussion, you're just seeing the share price chart. If the, if the share prices have gone up much more than the earnings, then that's an important piece of information. But the share price itself is not an important piece of information. And I think because we've got these anchoring biases, it causes us and we get caught up by listening to all these commentators on television just making a whole lot of dribble commentary. Um, and we take it as some important reference point. We're, you need to do your own work and actually work out what things are worth and then look at the share price. Excellent. Thank you, Hamish. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks for your time. A pleasure, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.